Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Cometeer, an exceptional new coffee company that blends the best of what is old with the best of what is new, using cutting-edge technology to preserve and deliver specialty coffee in its purest, most original form. Cometeer is the perfect metaphor for how tradition and modernity might elevate one another. I'm here with Ray Armand Trout, who is one of my absolute favorite poets, certainly one of my favorite poets alive and writing in the English language. She's much acclaimed, um, and yet I think because of the, the, the nature and sociology of poetry, she is embarrassingly underknown and underappreciated outside of the poetry world. And I encourage my listeners who don't read poetry or don't read much to check her out. Um, she's written over a dozen collections and she's got a new book uh, that's just come out called The Finalists. And uh, I'm very excited to have her here to talk about the life of poetry and much else besides. So welcome, Ray. So I'm happy to be here, Zohar. Thank you for having me. You have a poem in your new book called Influence, and I'm wondering if you could read it, and then I'd love to get into uh, some of it with you, uh, specifically with the angle on the question of how the poet might relate to the rest of the world, the non-poetry reading world. Keats obviously has this famous, much overquoted line that poets are the... Uh, unacknowledged legislators of the world. And I'd, I'd love your, your take on that sentiment uh, and what it means to be a poet, you know, today in 2022, in a world so uh, preoccupied with the word, but maybe the distracted word, the word written in haste, not necessarily uh, the word that you find in, in a poem. Yeah, uh, poets are the extremely unacknowledged legislators tours of the world. Um, I, I really don't even know what it would mean to be a legislator of the world. Um, so that that saying has always puzzled me. But if anyone is in uh, the unacknowledged legislator of the world, I suppose it would be, sadly, it would be billionaires and corporations and um, dark money. They, they are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Sadly, not poets, but Anyway, I'm going to read Influence now, and it's um, a kind of grim, I guess, assessment of the position of the poet in society now. Influence. At the top of my game, I was paid modestly to place riddles about ruination in the pages of the glossies, read by thousands, perhaps hundreds, to be a twee ghost, some might say, while suicidal influencers blew up in the neighborhoods. Tell me about these suicidal influencers. Suicidal influencers is, uh, no, it's not in quotes. It's blew up that's in quotes, which is an important difference. Um, I, I wanted uh, blew up to mean both in the the kind of contemporary jargon in which when something blows up, it, it becomes a meme and, you know, is suddenly everywhere. And then also in the, the grimmest sense of uh, suicide bombers, terrorism. Um, and I wanted it, you know, to, to mean those things equally, I suppose. 
Um, so, you know, who has influence? To some extent, it's, you know, the uh, people who get millions of followers on Facebook for demonstrating how they put on their makeup. Or it's the people who are willing to commit violence. Um, so I was, you know, um, pointing both ways at that and saying that uh, the poet's influence seems to be quite small in comparison with, with uh, these other trends in society. Is that a bad thing? Would the world be a better place if poets or some poets had more influence? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, maybe not. Because um, uh, I really don't want to be a, a spokeswoman for anything. I think it would be better if more people read serious literature because, you know, the problem isn't just with people not reading poetry. People also don't read literary fiction. Uh, I mean, that the numbers for people who buy serious new fiction have fallen off a cliff too. So it's, it's not just poetry. Um, so I think that it would be better if uh, more people spent more time reading, including poetry and um, were able to sit quietly with a thought for a minute, you know, uh, and reading something that's not immediately self-evident, you know, like, oh, I get this, I can, I can quit reading now, you know, take some quiet sitting down with it. I think your work is obviously dense with meaning and deep, and it pays dividends to read over and over again, but it also has a quality of being very fast. And I could page through your book almost like scrolling through social media. I don't know if that's uh, a, a bias that I have simply because I'm a geriatric millennial <laughs> who came of age uh, with the smartphone. But in a way, I think your your poetry is a resistance to this this superficiality you describe, but it's also kind of has the sound or the feel of superficiality at the same time that it's deep. There's a way in which it's very trendy. So I'm wondering if consciously or unconsciously how you how you think about the influence that those suicidal influencers and those makeup exhibitionists has had on your work. Uh, not not in the sense of giving you something to resist, but also something in the in the sense of a positive influence or mat material to to work through. Well, it's something that I've absorbed. I mean, I'm a sponge for language, really. I just love language, and um, I'm to use a different metaphor. I'm like a magpie. I'll just you know pick up anything and take it back to my nest. For a long time, I mean decades. I was a teacher at a university, so I got to hear the language of the young. Um, and of course, sometimes I watch television, whatever, and I, I pick up stuff, whatever I hear, and I kind of take it back and look at it like it's a shiny object. What can I do with this? And I don't know if that's deliberate or if that's just the way I am. Uh, but I, I try to work in different kinds of discourse in my poetry. That is maybe philosophy, science, um, 
meditation of a sort, but also these cultural memes. And I just like to rub different levels of discourse against one another and see if sparks fly, see what happens, see how they affect one another. In Influence, you describe yourself, or at least the, the speaker of the poem, as placing riddles about ruination in the pages of the glossies. So you are in the margins of this culture, but you're still there. <laughs> and uh, what do you want the people who are there for the prose, as it were? You know, they're there, they're there to get the news or they are to get the advertisements. What do you want them to get when they, out of the corner of, of their eye, see your riddles of, of ruination? <laughs> well, they mostly skip poetry, I think. But um, once in a long while, someone writes me, someone who's not another poet, writes me and says that they read my poem and that they found something interesting about it. And I always really like that because, you know, it means that I'm getting outside my bubble. But, I mean, you know, I, I think that putting riddles about ruination in the pages of the glossies is a, some, sometimes a, a good way to describe how I feel. And it's funny, you know, but it's also sort of grim. Mm. Would I choose poetry again as a career? I don't know. I mean, mm. but, but I, here I am now. I've spent my life doing it. So I, it's the way I use my mind. It's, it's what, how I process the world, how I process my emotions, the ideas that interest me, the things I see, they all come together in my poetry. So I'm just going to keep doing it. Give me a sense of that, not regret, but that sense of what you might have achieved if not through poetry. Well, if I really had the chops, which I don't think I did, but if I did in my fantasy world, I could have been a scientist because I'm very interested in science. I'm interested in cognitive science and in physics. I mean, I, it's a total fantasy to think I could have been a physicist. But um, if we're going to go to fantasy world, then, you know, maybe I'll go there. I mean, you know, if you think about making a difference, you might fantasize being a lawyer, but most lawyers don't work in a way that makes positive change. I'm not saying that none do, some do, but you're very lucky if you get to be those people. So it, it's hard to come up with something. Ooh, it would have been great to be a musician. I love, I love to hear music. Musicians look like they're having so much fun when they play. Um, they get to do art that's also social, right? So there's a, there's a fantasy for you. I think your poetry achieves something that cognitive science or physics does not achieve. And I, from my point of view, I'm quite grateful <laughs> that you became a poet um, because I think what you do so beautifully is you capture the experience of thinking. It's not the only thing you do and feeling. And, you know, cognitive science might be able to give you a story about pattern recognition, you know, based upon data or statistics, neuroscience will tell you this part of the brain lit up, you know, when presented with this information. But you're giving us a first person account and allowing us to go through that ourselves and gain a kind of intuitive appreciation for this process that you don't necessarily get when you're reading a scientific article. Yeah. I really think that a good poem, and obviously I like poetry, I read poetry, too many people who want to write poetry, by the way, don't read poetry, which is very strange. But 
I read a lot of poetry. And um, to me, a good poem is a poem that weaves thought and feeling together so that they really mesh and are inseparable from one another. I just wanted to jump back also to the um, the influence poem and this this um, this sentiment of being on the sidelines from the action. And give another frame for it. You know, I know you grew up evangelical and departed from that, but obviously the the cultural and linguistic registers still inform your work. And so when I when I think of a poet who's ignored, I immediately go to the you know the archetype of the biblical prophet. I think of Jeremiah from which we get Jeremiad, whose sort of sullen destiny is to poetize into the void. And I even think of Isaiah in uh, chapter six, where he tells his audience, see, but don't perceive, which is a kind of riddle unto itself, a sense of actually you're not worthy to understand the poem. And it, for if you did, then you, you would be on the right track. But the, the starting point for changing one's ways is actually having the shock of the prophecy or the poem arrest them. And say, you know what? I don't, I don't know what's going on, but maybe, maybe I should. Maybe I should uh, examine myself. So, is there a kind of moral impact? Maybe this is romantic of me to a poem that, in fact, doesn't make itself available to the reader, but makes them wonder what's going on here. Well, I think that's a, a really good state of mind to be in, in general. You know, because <laughs> so. Um, I do like to write poems that leave people thinking and, and leave people wondering. And I like, I like poems that raise questions that just kind of hang in the air. Um, and, and yeah, that, as you say, that, that make you think, hmm, maybe I don't understand this thing that I thought I understood. It's really not so transparent after all, because that's my experience of the world. I think that's all of our experience of the world actually. And I think it was Keats, to go back to the romantic poets, who, who said uh, that you should avoid irritable reaching for conclusion. And I think too many people do that, right? They're, I mean, I understand that we can't see what's going on in our society, which is huge, dispersed, and, del- and the power sources are deliberately occluded from our eyes. But too many people just, you know, make up some lurid fantasy. Now I'm thinking of the QAnon people and then form a community around dispersing it. And it's what I see there is a longing for community. And it's the content almost doesn't matter. The content is intense and, you know, stimulating but what it's responding to is the opacity of power that we all experience and also the loneliness of not having a, a, a community. So I think you can respond in, in good and bad ways to the sense that you don't know what's going on. I think the good way to respond, I mean, I'm not saying that I do this myself, but the good way to respond would be to reserve judgment, do actual research. I know they use the word research, but you know, actual research, um, and try, uh, really try without jumping to conclusion to discover what's happening. Um, now, if you have to go through that process in order to read a poem, if you, ha- if you can't jump to the conclusion, 
if you have to keep reassessing as you read, then that sort of simulates the process that I was talking about, maybe trains it. Does that mean that at least some poems are a kind of training in resisting conspiracy or resisting paranoia? I never actually thought of that before. I was just kind of, you know, speaking my mind in in general. But um, I think it's, actually, I think a lot of my poems are sort of paranoia-inducing in a way. They make you think, I don't know what's really standing behind me. I should turn around and look. Uh, more um but you know i guess what i would say is you should really turn around and look and not just make it up um and that takes more effort but i think the effort that it takes to read a poem that you don't immediately grasp is a, a good effort to make it's stimulating to the mind right you mentioned the longing for community and the loneliness um, that really, you know, grips so many people, regardless of the form uh, that that can take. It's almost basic to to humanity to be lonely and also to to seek uh, companionship or community to alleviate that. And one of my favorite Jewish thinkers is uh, Rav Joseph Soloveitchik. Uh, wrote a book called The Lonely Man of Faith, but really throughout his writings describes human condition as a dialectic between the singularity or the singleness of the human being and the camaraderie or the um, sociality of the human being. And uh, when you think about the act of writing poetry, I'm wondering if you can speak to that dialectic in your own experience. How much is it about for you going into the place of loneliness or singleness, solitude, uncovering this sort of untranslatable ray uh, soul. And to what extent is it about crossing some divide, however, you know, impossible, and making contact with the reader, real or imagined, uh, because of this this shared substance, this this linguistic substance that connects us all? Right. Good question. Well... In the writing process and leading up to the writing process, you have to be alone or at least you have to be in a quiet situation and you have to be patient and you have to be open to whatever comes, um, at least to consider whatever comes, right? It's a, it's a little bit like meditation, which I've only done a little of. I don't claim to be an expert meditator but I've certainly um, heard the language around meditating and tried it a little bit. And I think it's not unlike the state that a poet or, you know, perhaps other kinds of artists put themselves in. It's almost like a kind of self-hypnosis, though I couldn't really explain that. But um, you have to be able to put obtrusive thoughts aside, like you can't be you know, worrying about your taxes if you're if you're hoping to write a poem. So you have to be able to control your mind to put ob- obtrusive thoughts aside. But you also have to stay awake, stay alert, stay attentive, and wait. That almost sounds religious, right? You're 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 waiting for a message from you know the void, the beyond, as you whichever way you want to look at it. Um, 
And then something will occur eventually. Either you'll see something. I'm talking about myself, really. Either I'll see something striking that I want to put down or a new thought will cross my mind or, you know, worst comes to worse, I pick up a book that looks interesting and start reading it and maybe the language in the books or something. So sometimes taking a walk, you know, seeing something new. So you kind of wait and you also kind of hunt, but you have to hunt in a, in the way that's open to the random, like whatever appears might be it. You don't know what it's going to be. You may have an idea. Uh, sometimes when I start a poem, I, I've already had a feeling or a perception that I know I want to work with, but I don't know what comes next. So you have to sort of hunt for that, but you can't be too aggressive about it because you, you really don't know what it is. So you have to keep the wide range of vision, you know, and uh, not grab too quickly, but also not, not push the wrong things away. So I guess that's a little bit like meditation. I think the the act of creating is very mystical in that sense. There's something that didn't exist and now it exists and bridging those is a transitory moment that if you didn't give it attention would have just been a moment like any other. So even just the choice to sit there and and register <laughs> the beyond is uh you know is it a kind of aesthetic decision, you know, why this moment and not any other. But then um, to sit there and work on the poem once it's already something and make something from something and then, you know, reach out to the New Yorker or Paris Review or wherever it is and say, hey, you know, I have a thing, I want to share it. Um, that, that, that brings us very far away from the experience of poetry as waiting to the social function of poetry. And, you know, not everybody has um, the ability to sit and wait, but of those who do, um, not everybody's product, if you will, comes out feeling like uh, the kind of thing that might interest others. <laughs> well, I've been doing so this a it, long time. To the extent that I do interest others, and as you pointed out in your intro, that's a limited extent. But to that, to that extent, I could say that I've been practicing a long time. <laughs> I guess the question is just sort of like, in your own experience but also in your role as a teacher how how do you wait the first part which is the waiting the sort of being open to the event as an end in itself against the second part which is the like the making public uh and making artifactual that discovery in a form that at least for the most part isn't going to change editorially once it's released it will be it will change you know, in the reception and maybe in your own attitude towards it, but the object is now uh, finished. Right. I think that there's been uh, an element left out of our discussion that I want to put into it. And that is, you know, there's a whole poetry community is the, the common phrase or world of poetry that is not the world of the New Yorker or the Paris Review. Um, and poets have communities, poets, especially when they're young, kind of school together like fish and they read their poems to one another and they publish small magazines together. It used to be mimeograph magazines now probably is on the internet. And um, it's a kind of almost, you know, barter society where people share things and, 
you know, I'm going to send you my book and, and you send me your book. And, you know, so I still have all of those connections from when I was a young and aspiring poet. And that's where I go first. So there isn't just this, these two things, the, the little private person and the public world where everyone, not everyone, a lot of people see the New Yorker, but most people ignore the poems. There's a whole in-between space where um, poets talk to poets. And that's one good thing about poetry. Like, I feel like if I went to almost any substantial city in the United States, there'd be a poet there. Maybe I only know them by name, but, but whom I could reach out to and we could have coffee. And if I were a young, poor poet and needed a place to stay, I could probably crash at their house. And that's happened before. So there is such a thing as a poetry community, maybe because we're such a sort of marginalized subculture. Actually, that's fascinating. Um, as, as a Jewish person, uh, you know, the Jewish population in the in the world is pretty small relative to the seven billion, and I I have a sense of of that as well that I can go to a foreign city you know anywhere in the world and if I need a place for the Sabbath for Shabbat uh, I'm not going to be left out on the street and that is very meaningful. I think there's like a, different ways to to understand why that's the case within a Jewish framework. So I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how you understand it within a poetic one. I think what one sense is just you know. Um, small groups need to stick together. Like Hannah Arendt speaks about the warmth shared by pariah peoples. <laughs> she actually spoke disparagingly about it because she thought that that warmth was, in a sense, a claustrophobia, that people would be more healthy if they could have more distance from one another and that respect and friendship need distance to breathe. But never mind that point. Um, <laughs> uh, I think there's another sense, though, in which you might say what what brings people together is the shared mission. So it's not the fact of marginalization. It's an actual sense of we're here to accomplish something and we have to help one another out. And I'm wondering, um, you know, beyond the fact that poetry is, is, is a marginal art and a marginal form today, is there like a common experience that you think poets might have? where if you knew nothing else about a person, but you knew that they were a poet, you, there'd be an understanding separate from the, well, we're just, you know, we're, we're low status in a sense relative to doctors and lawyers, but that has to do with the act of poetizing itself, like a certain relationship to the word and, and, and to language and, and some values that you might be able to infer from that. I think that poets are people who are naturally attuned to language. So um, we're people who tend to get innuendos and, and pick up on nuances. And so sometimes, you know, we can sort of be together and go, did you hear that? You know, and we both do. Um, but, and we have the same body of knowledge in, in general. I mean, you know, American poets, sadly, as everyone knows, don't know enough about world poetry but we have a kind of common knowledge of, of American poetry uh, that we can fall back on. And so we can converse with each other because, you know, we know the same texts. So there, there might be a parallel there between us and what you were saying about the Jewish community. That's interesting to think of sort of a poetic tradition as a kind of, you know, loose scripture. And uh, 
and the act of making poetry as a kind of, you know, both commentary in the sense of responding to the past, but also in the sense of making it new for another generation. Do you feel a sense of responsibility in that sense as a poet, um, either to past poets who aren't here anymore or to future generations? Uh, do, you, do you think about what poetry will look or feel like in a hundred years <laughs> or what the readership will look and feel like. And, and, you know, obviously it's, it's maybe grandiose to think one one's work will, will still be read, but I, I think yours will be, but, and even, even if it's not, I think it, 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 it's part of the ether that does have an influence. So kind of, how do you think about your position in, in the long arc of poetic history and poetic destiny, you know, Several thousand years ago, poetry was high status, maybe the highest status, uh, and maybe once sometime in the future. You don't even have to go back that far. In the days of the Romantic poets, poetry was high status, and Lord Byron was a superstar. But, you know, uh, things have changed. But we don't have to focus on that. Um, so what? what's worse, the worst thing we have to focus on is that when I think of a hundred years from now, um, I think, will there be paper? Will there still be enough people alive? Um, will they all, you know, be cannibals? Well, I mean, I really have a very um, well-founded, I think, pessimistic view of what's going to happen unless, and I think this is impossible, so I just have a pessimistic view, unless people very, very quickly, like tomorrow, all got together and decided what they needed to do uh, to, stop, to stop our cultures from emitting carbon and methane into the atmosphere, um, to make sure that nuclear weapons are decommissioned, and to be prepared for coming pandemics. Here's my optimistic scenario. My optimistic scenario is that a lot of civilization crashes, but there are little wealth subcultures, pockets of uh, of humans still left, and maybe they preserve some bits of our culture, and maybe poetry is some of it. Maybe they memorize poems. Um, who knows what poetry, you know, but that's that's my picture of the future. Meditations with Zohar is sponsored by Kamatir, my favorite coffee not just for its exceptional taste, but for its unique aesthetic. Kamatir comes straight to your door as ice cubes, which you can then melt in hot water and have immediately as a hot cup of coffee. It tastes even fresher than if a cup were made for you at your local coffee shop. I highly recommend getting a box. Use the link kamatir.com slash Zohar to get $20 off your first order. Let's say that the apocalypse, as it were, you know, in scare quotes, is a kind of inevitability or close to it. Why poetize? Is it like the the scene in the Titanic where the where the orchestra, you know, plays one final piece as the ship sinks? Is it just, you know, might as well? Well, kind of. I mean, um, I think I would go crazy if I didn't, because I don't know what else to do with my feelings and my thoughts. And also, it's the way that I communicate with my friends, too, you know, who are also poets. Um, so it's it's my community, and it's, it's my mental habit, and it feels almost spiritual sometimes, too, although I don't 
really believe in a personal God who's listening to us all. But um, but nonetheless, you know, there is, I do have a sense of what people call spiritual. And I think poetry is like my church or something. Do you go back to certain poets in light of this sentiment um, for inspiration on the question of what does it mean to be an artist at the end times? Like, you know, from a certain historical view, people have always been feeling apocalyptic, <laughs> predicting the end of the world. And of, in one sense, they were right. And in one sense, they were wrong. Uh, so from that point of view, like, what are who are the precedents that you go to for thinking about art in this time? Well, I go to, and I don't know if it has anything to do with the apocalypse, but I tend to go to poets who really look at the things of the world, like William Carlos Williams, and the way that William Carlos Williams can make, you know, a, a cat stepping down onto what he called a jam closet, but, you know, some kind of cupboard, and then into a pot, sound just like amazingly significant. Um, so the, just, you know, looking at things as if they were of value, um, Maybe that just makes it worse because <laughs> you see what you have to lose. But um, the beauty of language, I take comfort from the beauty of language. And, you know, you can find that everywhere from, you know, Shakespeare and Keats to poets writing today. Um, I guess my favorite poet is Emily Dickinson, who, you know, really looked pretty hard at Into the Void, at death and at darkness and at consciousness your new book is called Finalists. Obviously, one thinks of you know people who who are up for a prize, may maybe be standing in line to get it. Some will win, some won't. Um, but sort of, there is this macabre uh, dimension that you've hinted at, which is maybe you know being a finalist in the sense of being at the end. Do you have a specific meaning in mind with that title or a range of meanings? Why why is that the organizing? title for your for your work is it going to be your final work no i already have another book that's almost finished <laughs> it's called go figure um <laughs> but so i'm going to look at finalists it's it's here somewhere um it's kind of long but the last two sections there's a, a crow i actually observed this in my front yard as you know crows are very intelligent so i'll just read the last two stanzas of it a hole in fresh dirt surrounded by orange cones into which a crow peers, hops sideways, then peers again. These wildlife finalists will take your breath away. There's a, a sort of dividing line between those two sections and the last two lines about the wildlife finalists are in quotes. And that's because that is something that I heard some you know, idiot on TV saying, probably I was just changing the channel or whatever, but there was um, some program where it, it was showing the amazing feats that wild animals can do, like, like, look how high a gazelle can jump. I guess they were going to see, maybe, I didn't watch enough of it, but maybe vote on, you know, which animals were <clears throat> the most amazing. This person was saying, you know, who's who's gonna, which animal is gonna be, uh, you know, the winner among these wildlife finalists? 
which of course made me think about extinction and about how many creatures have gone extinct. And, you know, if, if look how high a giraffe can, can reach is, you know, something that you're going to be impressed by on TV. You might also want to know that there are more of those, uh, giraffe chew toys for for children than there are actual giraffes in the world by far now. In light of that, I'm wondering if you might read your poem, Lions. Can I read the one called Riddens? Sure. Riddens. Okay, we've rendered the rendition. How often? What were we trying to get rid of? We exposed the homeless character of desire to the weather. Shall we talk about the weather? Worsening four times faster than expected, eight times, until the joy of pattern recognition kicks in, until the crest of the next ridge is what remains of division. That's just one of my apocalyptic ones. That poem had a bunch of different transitional moments. The the two at the end that leap leap out for me are the um the joy of pattern recognition kicking in is a shift in register and then um the crest of the next ridge is what remains of division. Can you talk to me about the the joy <laughs> of pattern recognition kicking in and then what happens after that? What's the exoteric aspect of this poem? Well, I, you know, obviously it's got something to do with the weather. Shall we talk about the weather? Worsening four times faster than expected, eight times. Well, you could see a pattern there, right? You know, mm. four, eight, 16. Um, and pattern recognition is a pleasure for humans. That's why we like to do puzzles. And we get the old the old joy kicks in, but it's uh, it's a pleasure that is a pleasure taken in something that is ultimately going to destroy us, probably. And then the last part, until the crest of the next ridge is what remains of division. Well, I live in the West. I don't I'm not sure where you live, but um, I've seen fire coming over the ridge as I was driving down the highway, you know. Um, I've been where ashes were falling on my face. So, you know, it's, uh, been there, haven't done that, but I've been there. I used to live in Southern California. So, you know, that's just getting more and more apocalyptic with its fire seasons. I don't know what's going to happen next there, but now I live in, uh, just a little bit North of Seattle. So at least it's wet here, but, um, Oregon is is drying out and starting to have terrible fires and eastern Washington on the other side of the Cascades is drier and has a lot of fires and the smoke comes over here so now we have a smoke season like in, in August where you know the sky just gets this terrible kind of ochre color and uh you know it's you can smell smoke can't be good for your lungs so that's where that's coming from. So the joy that one takes in pattern recognition could refer to anyone, um, you know, who's sort of in a sense focused on the wrong thing. They're focused on the aesthetic <laughs> instead of the ethical, if you will. Or they're they're focused on the the analytical instead of the 
you know, the call to action. And that seems to be a kind of moral hazard of art. Um, the, the, the sentiment that, that art for its own sake or art as an end of itself, art is about revealing the truth, stands at odds with the sense that there's a state of emergency requiring us to put down everything and, you know, take up arms. Archilochus, uh, one of the sort of founding figures of uh, lyric poetry, delights in putting down his shield and running from battle to write the verses, <laughs> the autobiographical verses of his preference for the glory of verse to the glory of militarism. But, you know, in a culture in which it was heroic to go to battle and shameful to leave, that's that's a fascinating move um, because it's a kind of immoralism, a sense that the artist has a vocation that, that takes her out of the mainstream values. And uh, climate change, to take what, but one example, actually requires massive collective action and collaboration. It, by definition, will have to be a mainstream issue for it to succeed. And the artist who is looking for the perfect word or turn of phrase is going to have to make alliances with the suicidal influencers and the uh, the makeup exhibitionists if we're to get anywhere. <laughs> so I guess that that was a long-winded way of really saying, like, do we need more or less art? And does does emergency change that calculus? So times of prosperity or abundance um, make it possible to sort of invest in the po- the positive elements of the human condition, creativity, free expression, but sort of moments of crisis and catastrophe um, require people to sort of sacrifice those values for the sake of something a little bit more brutal, maybe less poetic, less artistic, but more utilitarian. Well, that is something that I think about and that other poets are thinking about now too. And there are um, quite a few poets who have tried to, or are trying to write political work that's, you know, somewhat more direct than mine, maybe without giving up on art. Um, Especially, I would say, poets who've taken on the Black Lives Matter um, issues, like, for instance, Terrence Hayes and Jericho Brown are examples of that, who can address these those issues without, you know, ceasing to write poetry that, you know, pleases the ear and intrigues the mind. But it's still a question, right? Do you put down your pen now and, and run and join a fire brigade? Well, I mean, I don't because I'm, you know... 70 plus years old but if I, if I were younger I might feel some obligation there but you know for me I just keep doing what I do I know that art at its best art is both makes you think and and is an instance of the beautiful and maybe it's uh, unfashionable or unethical or whatever to say so but I think that the beautiful whether it's the beauty of nature or the beauty of art is a reason to live, really. I would agree with that. Um, not that you would defend this argument, but I wonder, um, we started with this defensive poetry that was about a poetry of pause in an age of speed, a poetry of resisting the easy answer, 
um, and sort of opening up a space for doubt and complexity. But now we've actually moved to a place where at least vis-a-vis climate, you know, what, what is needed is less, potentially less doubt and more moral certitude, <laughs> more fundamentalism. <laughs> you know, I, per, I, I personally, uh, I have a hard time with activism just, you know, psychologically because I, uh, consider myself a person of contemplative temperament and seeing lots of dimensions to things. And, uh, you know, I, I could go on and on, but if, if, uh, if there's a problem that requires action now, whatever that may, may be, um, then it seems like the aesthetics might have to shift away from nuance and complexity and skepticism <laughs> and Zen, you know, just, just enjoying the moment, uh, no matter what happens, you know, a la, um, John Cage and moving more towards the, this is right. And this is wrong mode. So I think you came of poetic age in a time where it was strangely radical to just notice things. <laughs> uh, at least when I, when I think of uh, language poetry, I think it's, it's part of a movement that's resisting um, the mainstream idea of sort of the commercialization of everything in favor of process as an end in and of itself and attention as an end in and of itself. And I just wonder, I guess this is another way of asking, to what extent that value set is still applicable in 2022, or if language poetry and where it comes from and what it represents is antiquated vis-a-vis -a, -vis a new climate of activism that we, we seem to be uh, moving towards? Well, I think that language poetry is, uh, in its origins, more complicated, more complex than the way you just described it. I mean, what you said is not inaccurate, but that's, you know, that's one part of it. Um, that's one part of what people said. I don't think I ever said that. Sometimes people say that I'm a founding member of, of the language poetry movement, and I don't think that's really true, although I was there, so I was in the conversation. But anyway, um, I think there are other aspects of language poetry that are more helpful now. For instance, um, language poetry has emphasized poetry that's open-ended and in which the reader can be a participant. I don't think I don't think really an equal participant, but let's say you know there can there can be more than one way to read a poem that's valid, and and the the reader has to be an active sort of part of of uh, the poem experiencing the poem. So I think that is a little mini community that language poetry encourages. And then within the text themselves, many times they're composed, and I'm not just talking about myself, I'm talking about friends like Ron Silliman, but a lot of times the texts are composed in a kind of, out of sort of modular units, and um, the units can be shifted around. Um, they can combine in new ways. Well, you see this in Gertrude Stein too, you know. Um, if a certain sentence occurs right after this other sentence, it means one thing, but if you move it down to, you know, the bottom of the page, same sentence, and it occurs after a different sentence, it, it means something else. So there's a sense that things are movable and changeable and that, um, we can reorganize that I think you could see 
in language poetry, as well as, of course, the idea that we have to keep a close eye on language because uh, it's often used in manipulation and disinformation, and that's more relevant than ever, really. I mean, we came of age in the uh, sort of waning days of the Vietnam War, so we saw a lot of the, um, or were aware of a lot of the the really uh, twisted manipulations of language, you know, like basically they they, they called uh, these kind of concentration camps that they build, built for some of the South Vietnamese, something like peace hamlets. Freedom hamlets. Freedom hamlets, right. Free, even more ironic, freedom, freedom hamlets. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, one of the things that I really enjoy and appreciate about language poetry is that, I don't want to say cynicism, but a kind of prejudice against authority, let's say. Um, what I'm what I'm getting at with some of this line of questioning, though, is the sense that authority can't only be negative because then you can't mobilize. So um, if, if you're going to be skeptical of slogans or corporate, uh, corporate speak because it's manipulative, then you'll probably have to be skeptical of all kinds of linguistic forces that, <laughs> that are manipulative, but possibly for good ends. There's a kind of Machiavellian argument that one needs to govern in prose. <laughs> campaign in poetry, but govern in prose. And that if you just um, favor the suspicion of mainstream language, then you'll never be able to activate people. Um, you'll never be able to reach beyond the margins of the New Yorker <laughs> uh, to, 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 get those, uh, to get those makeup artists on your side. You know, some poets do have renown right now, uh, re uh, they have renown for writing in ways that are accessible. To give sort of one personal example, Rupi Kaur uh, has sold you know millions of books, and um, interestingly for me, anyways, is sociologically. So I have a friend who tells me very smart guy. Um, he went to you know Harvard uh, Law School and did a PhD at NYU, and he told me that he doesn't he doesn't get poetry very smart person. And I hear this sentiment all the time from, from people that I respect. And I'm just like, how could you not get poetry? You are a close reader and you appreciate good ideas, but it's like, I don't have the patience. I don't have the ear whatever, but the only poetry that I've, you know, read recently and that I actually like is Rupi Kaur. And I have to say in my head, I'm like cringing, no disrespect to Rupi Kaur. I mean, but just like, wow, I must be living in an echo chamber um, where smart people that are very thoughtful um, want language um, that is easy and don't want language that's arresting or complicated or can be read in multiple ways. They actually don't want to do the reader response <laughs> that language poetry was inviting. They want kind of to be told didactically, here's the, here's my trauma. Uh, let me share it with you. Feel my pain. I mean, you're singing my song here, really. And, you know, again, I don't want to single her out either. But since since you mentioned her name, she's just one of, of many who I, I guess what she's doing. And I only have a passing knowledge of this 
is writing things that are empowering to young girls, a kind of the self-empowerment movement, which is all over the board now, not just in poetry, but it's kind of self-affirmation, self-empowerment. And so where do we, where do you go from there? I mean, you empower yourself to do what? Climb the corporate ladder? I was trying to give a kind of Machiavellian defense that in a sense, um, it's it's not good art, but in an age in which what we need is more than art, the fact that it's bad art, <laughs> uh, it means it's good enough. It's good enough for, for the purposes of mobilizing people and getting people to feel, hey, you know what, poetry matters. But that's all it makes them feel, even if it makes them feel that. I think it tends to make them feel, hey, I matter, which, you know, maybe that's an important thing, depending on who you are. But there are... <laughs> There are a lot of people who are already too self-absorbed. Um, but the other, the, the real problem, I think, with um, material like that is that I feel like I already know what it's going to say before I look at it, you know, so, or at least by the time I read the first line, I know what it's going to say. So then I'm, why, why continue? I'm bored already. Um, that's not what reading's about to me. Good slogans whether for good or bad causes, require a kind of prosaicness that, um, from my aesthetic point of view, resists, it is in opposition to poetry. Like whether it's, yes, we can, or lock her up, or build the wall, or get Brexit done, whatever it is, um, there's something about that snappiness that to me is antithetical to what I'm looking for in a poem. You know, I don't mind that sort of if it's used ironically or used the way you're eavesdropping on language. But when it's taken at face value, I feel manipulated to use that link, that word that you alluded to before. And yet, if we listen to the focus group uh, leaders, it's these kinds of phrases that do accomplish things. So what what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that we're probably not going to convert the world <laughs> to the poetic cause, but should we be trying? Should we be trying to get people to see be more comfortable with difficulty, or should we be compromising and um, crossing over to the other side in an effort to sort of bring some of the poetic value to mainstream society? that doesn't have an ear or desire for poetry. I mean, obviously, fame and platform are always super relative. But you're somebody who um, has a, has found an audience and critical acclaim by being you, <laughs> by not by not compromising, you know, you weren't out for the accolades. I think you're, you're a purist. Um, but as somebody who's somewhat young, I'm in my 30s, I'm looking, I'm thinking about my theory of change. I just, I guess my, you know, behind some of this is just what wisdom or insight uh, you might have for my generation when we think about the usefulness or uselessness of poetry in this giant world. <laughs> oh, well, first of all, I'm going to say, you know, get your life raft ready. And then I'm going to say, <laughs> and all that and then I'm going to say you know like get some poetry you can carry with you when you have to run from the fire or whatever it is um, but 
because you might want it later, but we might want it later. I'm the kind of person like you, you know, probably very much like you, who just cannot stand slogans of any kind, even political slogans from people on, you know, my side of things. Um, and I mean, it just really grates on me. And I'm also suspicious of power, whoever has it, you know. So, you know, I'm still interested in in this being in this group. I'm just too busy now, oddly. But um, I used to be in a socialist reading group where we read a lot of really interesting stuff, interesting new books that were written about what's happening now from a socialist slash communist perspective. Um, but what I kept thinking, when because, because some of these people were actually imagining that, you know, they could somehow cause the revolution to happen and that the revolution would be a good one. And um, I hope so. That would be great. But um, I, I keep thinking that the people who can make re- revolutions happen are the people who like power. Just an observation. And um, that the people who like power are not the people I want to be around. Or, I mean, so there's human nature that always has to be reckoned in to these conversations. Um, but I will say that I think that, you know, it's imperative that somehow or other society gets together and does something to shut down uh, coal power plants and... Um, stop leasing oil somehow that has to happen um but like you i'm i'm bad i i have been to demonstrations i have chanted chants uh i thought back during the iraq war um invasion i thought stay out of the bushes was a pretty witty one you know uh <laughs> for carrying on a sign so i i was in those demonstrations and i um, you know, obviously during the 60s, I could still say the chance, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? But, you know, I, there's a limit to how much I can enjoy chanting. Um, but I did it because I felt like it was important, right? There's a line in one of your poems that I really love. It's The poem is called The Book. And you say, um, God doesn't skim to get to the good part. This is the first mystery of God. He is in no hurry to meet his own image. <laughs> yeah. Since I was raised with religion and I can't abolish the idea of God from my mind, I uh, sometimes imagine, you know, what, what would it mean if a God existed? What I know this is, this is very heretical, but, you know, what would it be like to be God, what can we what can we uh, ascertain from that from the religious text that we know? Maybe we could just talk about those specific lines that God doesn't skim to get to the good part, as as it relates to um, the conversation we've been having. The line is that God is not a narcissist. <laughs> God has enough sort of self confidence or self understanding not to make it about God. <laughs> Except when you get to the end of the poem. Okay, fine. So <laughs> so you, so maybe you should read it then. 
All right, so it goes, it goes, God doesn't skim to get to the good part. This is the first mystery of God. He is in no hurry to meet his own image. For millennia, he sets sea scorpion against scorpion, swiveling in their clunky armor, brandishing their erect tails. Forever is nothing. When he does see someone looking back, he screams, stop imitating me. I was thinking about God as a stand-in for the ethical in this poem, at least in, in the part about not skimming. The, the, the culture wants to skim only to the good part. The, the careful reader, the good reader, the good actor, he's patient, um, works, you know, works through it all, including the boring parts or the hard parts. Mm-hmm. And doesn't, and, yeah, you're uh, right, and doesn't just look for his own image. Because there are so many, so many times you hear someone say, I could relate to that, meaning I, I've had the experience you're talking about and I feel like I'm just like you, um, you know, but what if we're not just alike? Can you still relate? You know, so in that moment, God doesn't need to see his own image, although supposedly man was created in his image. So there's that. But not all the parts of the Bible are about man. So even even if that's uh, <laughs> true, it's a kind of uh, argument for the cosmological perspective rather than the anthropological perspective, which I, I take it might relate to your environmental concerns as well. As well, um, actually, I think I wonder what you'd what you'd say to this characterization of your work. But I I often feel that you're writing from a point of view that is. Uh, not from a human point of view, but sort of from a almost like a hovering point of view, like a, an angle. Like if you were a filmmaker, you'd set up the angle in a room that would be clearly from the point of view of something that's animate, but not necessarily at the eye level of a, of a person who's walking around the room that we're used to, almost like in David Lynch. Uh, and so there's a tremendous disorientation as you feel that it's impersonal because it's unfamiliar, but it's still personal uh, in the sense of having a personality. So you're saying I'm kind of like the fly on the wall or something. <laughs> um, yeah, well, that sounds I think interesting. Your poems- yeah, they, they, maybe it's not one fly on the wall, but like 10 different flies <laughs> that you're moving between. And, and at that that's a kind of practice of not making the world in your own image or realizing that there's more, there's more to the world than just uh, my perspective, which I guess has, maybe that does have an ethical important. Maybe, maybe we would be better in our interactions with one another in our political lives. If, if we could somehow not make it always about us. Would you agree with that formulation? Yeah, it's hard to disagree with. <laughs> Actually, I'm ambivalent about it. On the one hand, oppressed groups need to make it about them, right? So um, there's a lot of identity-based politics that's going on, and it, it, it can sometimes rankle, but on the other hand, you know, it's necessary. I mean... Women feminists said, you know, let's make it about us. Let's make it about women. And uh, other oppressed groups have done the same thing. So 
I guess I'm trying to walk the fence like I always do and say say that, yeah, sometimes Mm -hmm. we're all too self-absorbed and we can only see people like us. But on the other hand, sometimes certain groups need to focus on what they need and make that clear. There's a certain anthropological conception of the self that we get from liberalism, political liberalism, which is a kind of, uh, you know, a naked a naked individual that can choose its associations um, and everything is up, is up for, for the autonomous individual to decide whether it wants. And there's a more atavistic romantic view of the self uh, an an anti-liberal view, which emphasizes that much of what we take to be chosen is in fact not chosen. Uh, It's inherited. you kind of, I think you get this um, from the left and you get it from the right. You know, there's a kind of, you can get it in the form of a racial essentialism. Uh, you can get it in the form of cultural essentialism. I'm wondering how you think about this idea of the self as choosing versus the self as already encumbered, already baggaged, uh, already produced, subjectivized by its. Uh, relationship to the world. Heidegger would say the self is thrown into existence. You know, Foucault would 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 describe subjectivization as a a byproduct of society. It strikes me that Buddhism and language poetry are more comfortable with viewing the self as a kind of construct uh rather than a self that chooses. But you know, I, I I don't think that either of them rejects the value of autonomy entirely or agency entirely, because you know that would that would that would flirt with anti-individualism, and I think inherent in the creative act is is some signature of the of selfhood of individuality. Yeah, I I would agree with that. With all of that, um, you you mentioned earlier those lines from my. Um, poem Startle Reflex, where there, there are three lines that say, people are startled to discover that their inner monologues are ghost-written. So that pretty much goes to what you were saying there. Um, but, you know, I, I meant that in more than one way. And yeah, obviously there are inherited traits, there are there are cultures. Uh, we are enculturated to think certain ways. Uh, I have five-year-old granddaughters, and so I've been watching a lot of enculturation or just how little children observe, observe and, uh, and absorb the culture. One of my granddaughters, they were playing with little figures that they could dress and put hair on, and so she put a short-haired wig on this little figurine, and she said, this is a daddy because daddy dads have short hair that's the thing about dads so (laughs) so that was her construction of gender based on what she'd seen in her five years in our culture so you know i (laughs) obviously incorrect but that but you can see how she got there so um it's really interesting to see enculturation happen that's all i can say uh, I didn't want to argue with her, but I just wanted to watch her. Sure. So that's a kind of ghost writing. Uh, the ghost being, in 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 Hegel's sense, the geist, right? The 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 spirit of the time, 
Right. So, you know, you get imprints, you get all of those imprints and there's the combination of, you know, some, some people, you probably are familiar with this, are believe, some biologists believe that we, there are not just our genes, there are, there's something called epigenetics, um, where certain genes can be turned off and turned on and that, and that, that can perhaps be influenced I know this sounds woo-woo and new agey, but I'm so not that. I, I have read about this. Um, can be influenced by the, situa- the the life situation of our parents and how the traumas that they went through. So, you know, certain genes might be turned on or turned off. Uh, stress-related genes, maybe, if the environment, even that your mother would, lived in, was very stressful. So um, that's a place where genetics meets culture, if that's true, in a very, you know, direct way. And culture, or at least situation, imprints itself right into the genome. I was just thinking of epigenetics as a metaphor then for a certain kind of poetry that's toggling between the inherited and the spontaneously created Maybe your work is epigenetic. Can I read a line from How to Disappear that sort of, just I'll read just a little bit, if I can find it, that sort of bears on that. Yeah. How to Disappear. You had been swinging restlessly between the appearance of spontaneity and the appearance of serious thought. You had been changing lanes after a glance in a mirror honest about its tendency to distort. What choice did you have? It was soothing to watch wisps of smoke from a nearby chimney disappearing one by one. That's only the first of two parts, but I just felt like reading it because it sounded something like what you were talking about. Absolutely. The the, um, swinging restlessly between the appearance of spontaneity and the appearance of serious thought. Of course, uh, the appearance uh, itself has a <laughs> a twofold meaning, right? From from Platonic philosophy, because it it can mean the uh, the actuality as well as the illusion of. Of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I do. I mean, in terms of, do I think that we make choices? Yeah, I don't know how we do it, but sometimes we do. So, I mean, and if you want to keep talking philosophy, there's but. I'm going to say his name wrong because I'm terrible with French, but Badiou, who talks about the event and how, you know, the the event kind of suddenly is, is a point or a moment that sort of ruptures the situation. And um, it can, you know, it can be anything. It can, can come from any direction and it might not be where you expect, but uh, that's maybe where a choice can happen. I'm glad that something in you and something in the world conspired to uh, to create the event that is your work. And uh, I encourage uh, my listeners to check out Ray Armentrout and uh, her new book, Finalists. And to those who are Armentrout fans, as I, as I am, I hope uh, you enjoy this conversation about the life of poetry. And thank you, Ray, so much for your, you know, your insight and for taking the time and, and your candor, most of all. Um, because I think your your message is um, 
is bleak, but um, perhaps ameliorated somewhat to this listener by your example, which is, uh, you know, that you continue to wake up each day and to read and to write and to be here. And so, um, you know, whatever, come what may, I, I, I have a little bit more of an optimistic bias, but nevertheless, come what may, I'm, I'll be happy that your, that your work is here. <laughs> Thank you. I, I do have fun with it, despite the looming apocalypse. <laughs> Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, zoharatkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.